Hi there, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News, in the studio of our partner, KVNF, in Paonia, Colorado. Today we're going to talk about the implications of the Trump presidency for the West, which is not going to be easy to do given the nature of the presidential campaign and all the promises that were made, and also because we don't really know yet what Trump's cabinet will look like. Still, the election of Donald Trump to the White House will certainly have impact on the West, and so we're going to spend today's show trying to sort through the tea leaves and come up with at least some conclusions. I'm joined today by our Washington, D.C. correspondent, Elizabeth Shogren. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. And by contributing editor Jonathan Thompson. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. Um, it's uh, It's been busy. Donald Trump is heading to the White House, and uh, there's been reams and reams of ink dedicated to that fact. Uh, but if you guys are like me, you've gotten a lot more screen time reading the news than normal, probably an unhealthy amount, to be honest. And that's because I really don't have a clear picture of what this means for the region, at least not yet, although it's getting clearer. So I thought we might just start with what we know. And that's what Trump has said on the campaign trail and what has happened since he's been elected. We know, for example, that Trump does not believe in climate change and that he's considering a lot of oil and gas people for his cabinet. We know he is at least sympathetic to the land transfer movement, which would put some federal land into state hands. Um, and that's a political goal that often appears on the Republican platform. We know that he has promised to save coal jobs, roll back environmental regulations, and to severely downsize or even do away with the Environmental Protection Agency, at least he says. But he's also promised to revamp fracking and bring jobs back to the gas patch. Um, and he's promised some pretty severe measures on illegal immigration, which, which has its own implications. So maybe we start with his energy promises, because I think those had real implications on the electorate, uh, but it's really not clear exactly where they're, they're going to go. And so how about we just sort start with coal? You know, we're here in Paonia, Colorado, where, you know, the war on coal is um, strongly felt, uh, where coal mines have closed and coal jobs have left. Um, but where exactly can Trump come up with uh, a revitalization of coal? Uh, maybe start with you, Jonathan. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't think he can really, you know, do much to bring back coal unless he was able to um, maybe, I, I, I suppose, you know, a, a, a president could always do some kind of subsidy package to um, subsidize coal or something like that. But otherwise, you know, I think what he can do is he can roll back regulations and that might do something, but the fact is, is that coal's not struggling because of regulations. Coal is really struggling because of market forces, and there's not much that the president can do to to fix that. I yeah, I uh, I did a story about this issue in the summer when when Trump was talking about how he first talking in in a really detailed way about what his plans were for coal, and at the time, coal industry CEO Robert Murray had just recently met with Trump and and said what he had told Trump, which is that it, it was not possible to bring back the coal mines. And so this is even from inside the coal industry. I think that there are things on the margin that Trump can do um, and will do uh, to support coal. For instance, there's a moratorium that the Interior Department put on new coal leases 
more than 40% of the coal that's used uh, to make electricity in the United States comes from federal lands. And Interior Secretary Jewell put a moratorium on new coal leases. The, the, the fact is, however, that there's plenty of coal already leased and there's not a big market for those new coal leases. So even if Trump lifts the moratorium, it's really not going to change the state of play very much. The only thing that would change the state of play for coal is if natural gas prices went through the roof. And mm. then all of a sudden, coal would become more competitive with natural gas again. But even in that scenario, so many of the, the coal-fired power plants in the U.S. have already been shut down. Um, so I guess basically what would help uh, U.S. coal the most would be if uh, the, the prices for, for coal abroad really um, increased dramatically and all of a sudden U.S. coal seemed worthwhile to ship overseas or if the price of natural gas um, overseas also went so high that all of a sudden coal seemed, U.S. coal seemed like something people wanted to ship. Yeah, I, And uh, yeah, it's hard to see how that happens. I, I think that's a really interesting corner that uh, Trump has put himself in by promising both to bring back coal and to sort of revitalize oil and gas. Elizabeth, you've talked about that before, but maybe expound a little bit on what that means. What 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 is the relationship between coal and natural gas? Well, what you've seen happen in the United States is a major shift in the fuel that we use to produce electricity. Coal was king um, for a really long time. And it was only a year ago um, that all of a sudden coal wasn't king anymore and, and natural gas started to be the biggest producer of electricity. And the reason that that happened is because of fracking, because there is so much natural gas available across the country at really low prices. And the stores of it are quite abundant. And so um, that that was the biggest driver for that change to happen. Other things were happening simultaneously, including the Obama administration came in with some pretty ambitious goals to clean up the exhaust that comes out of coal-fired power plants. And they did that. The um, the mercury air toxics rule there, had it had been more than 20 years in the making. The, the, the Congress had told the, um, the EPA to clean up toxic air pollution, but EPA hadn't done it. And, and Obama did do that. And when the electric companies looked into the future and tried to decide, do we install expensive pollution controls on our coal-fired power plants, or do we switch to cheaper natural gas, they made the decision to switch to cheaper natural gas. And you're not going to, you know, build a new um, coal-fired power plant in this day and age. Yeah, that's right, Elizabeth. And what I think is important um, or interesting is to look at the potential picks for Interior Secretary, um, when you take out Jan Brewer, the former Arizona governor who's more of an anti-immigration person than an energy person, uh, you have Robert Grady of Griffin Investors, that's an oil billionaire. You have Harold Hamm, the CEO of Continental Resources, which is oil and gas. And you have Forrest Lucas, who's the president of Lucas Oil Products, which is lubricants, additives in Greece. Um, you have Sarah Palin, former uh, Alaska governor, uh, who is drill baby drill. Um, and in that list, I don't really see coal people. I see oil and gas people. And so it's kind of interesting to think how a um, coal industry is going to sort of stack up against an interior secretary who um, in all likelihood is going to be an oil and gas person. 
That's it. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Brian. I mean, and it's it builds on what Elizabeth was saying is that you know really, natural gas and coal are in competition with each other. I mean, it's like Pepsi and Coke, kind of. If people are not using coal, then they're going to be using natural gas and vice versa. So, um, so if you do get some kind of natural gas person on there, then probably all bets are off for coal. But at the same time, you know, I'm, again, I think that. Uh, there's only so much control that these people, that the administration has over this stuff. For example, today I just saw that the Energy and Information Administration released some figures that said that coal is going back up right now because natural gas prices are going up. So coal is, the, the use of coal and the, the, the uh, proportion of it in the energy mix is increasing again after dropping for a long time against natural gas, um, simply because Natural gas prices are going up because there's been more demand for natural gas. So you get these cycles and you get these ups and downs and these weird fluctuations that really have nothing to do with who's who's in office. But but going back to these, you know, these interior secretaries, you know, I think that that they're all industry people, as you say. But um, I think that there's a lot about Trump that's kind of unprecedented and that we don't know what's going to happen. But. I think when it comes to interior secretaries, we can look back and see who Reagan chose and we can see who George W. Bush chose and we can kind of get a sense of what's going to happen based on on those choices because they, they were serious ideologues. James Watt um, under Reagan, you had Gail Norton under Bush. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these are people who were entirely, they're either, they're both ideologues in the case of James Watt uh, and they're both from the Mountain States Legal Foundation, which is like the sagebrush rebels legal arm. And Gail Norton ended up working for Shell after she left uh, the Interior Department. So you had these people that that were intent on really rolling back regulations. And so I I don't think that's unprecedented. I think that what will happen under Trump will probably be no worse than what happened under George W. Bush. And it's important to note, to note with what just what following on what Jonathan said is that despite their great efforts to roll back stuff and surely they did there are a lot of rules the rules that govern how the the public lands work are are already set and to rewrite those rules takes a lot of time and effort there it's established by law that you have to go through environmental um, analyses and it, it takes years and and once um, they they change a rule or try to change it it can be overturned in the courts so it's not a straight line it's not like somebody can go in with a magic wand and change all the rules. Um, it, it just doesn't end up happening that way. That's not to say that administrations don't have lots of impacts. They do. And some of it is just in the in the sense sensibility of the people who work for land management agencies. One of the things that was true about the Bush administration when they came to power, one of the biggest priorities of, of President Bush and, and Dick Cheney was to really increase the oil and gas production from federal lands sounds kind of similar, right? And one of the ways they did it is they gave bonuses to land management folks who, financial bonuses, who um, who increased natural gas production and drilling permits. So they can do that. They can give um, federal government workers bonuses to make them do something. And so that can have an impact on what they spend their time doing. 
but still, it seems like even um, incentivized bureaucrats aren't as good as uh, private landowners in um, making land available for for oil and gas drilling. And most of it seems to end up happening on private land and not not public land. Yeah, that's right. So right. There's some perspective there, but uh, go ahead, Jonathan. Oh, well, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, but at the same time, after Obama came into office, you know, and he stopped sort of incentivizing these guys to, to push forward oil and gas drilling, that's when oil and gas drilling went really crazy, really, is after Obama came into office. That's when oil production increased to record highs and stuff like that. Um, so because because of outside forces and. You know, I think when you look at it, when you look at something that a president actually did to increase energy production on public lands the most, I think you almost have to look at Jimmy Carter, who did a Sinfuels subsidy program where, you know, it was going after stuff like oil shale and turning coal into diesel fuel and that sort of things where he put in uh, you know, something like $80 billion and that caused this huge boom. And that as soon as he left office and the subsidies were withdrawn, then the, there was a huge bust after it. So, I, I mean, I guess that could be something that, that a President Trump or some other president could do. But I kind of doubt that a GOP Congress is going to go for it. I think it's fair to say that more influence can come in the form of subsidies than, than maybe in, in regulations, although those right. do have an impact. Uh, but when you're dealing with market forces, when these are just commodities on a global market, there's not a lot you can do to change those. And one of the other things, you know, I think that's an interesting part of this is what impact that will or won't have on the constituencies or the the folks who voted for Trump and now are expecting some delivery uh, on these promises. And Jonathan, you wrote a little bit about that recently from um, the Four Corners, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what's what's going on down there, what the expectations are, and and what's likely to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of surprising, really, because you hear people from in the energy fields who have this incredibly high hopes that they really think that because Trump is in there, that the all the regulations will be rolled back and they will drilling will kick back up again and they will get their jobs again. And what that's missing is the fact that it's almost all all the drilling is driven by prices, by the price of oil or gas. And, you know, during Obama's administration in 2014, really, you saw a peak in drilling and in production. And then prices dropped off because of global forces, because of OPEC, because of the supply versus demand. And drilling dropped off at that point. It had nothing to do with regulations. Um, Obama did put in some new regulations in place, but, but most of them haven't even been implemented yet, like the methane rule and that sort of thing. So their, their effects aren't even being felt on the ground yet. So... They dropped off, and now they're thinking that if Trump comes in and is even able to cancel these regulations, which, as Elizabeth said, it's not so easy, um, that suddenly everything's going to go back again, and they're going to go right back to work. I mean, people, I, I looked at all these Facebook pages and the comment threads, and people said, okay, we're getting back to work now. And, you know, I really don't think they are going to be, mm -hmm. unless something happens that's totally out of everybody's control, like, Saudi Arabia suddenly decides to start uh, to cut production or some war breaks out in the Middle East or something like that. 
One of the things I really want to do, Brian, is go back to Craig, Colorado and Gillette, Wyoming, where I did a story about what was going on in the, the, the struggle over the, the future of coal. And I'd love to see what, it, what do those communities feel like a year into a Trump administration. I can't imagine that somehow coal is back. And so if coal isn't back, will those communities start to feel really betrayed by Trump? Right. I think particularly in Wyoming... You've really seen that state and its leaders and its workers, I mean, just hitch their wagon to coal and very reluctant to let go of, of that as an economic driver. Um, and it will be interesting to see what happens there, although I dare say that most folks in a lot of these industries are, are used to being disappointed by administrations. I don't know if it has to do with the expectations being so high or what, but you know, there is the fact that part of the Trump vote had to do with this anti-establishment idea, and I just don't think that's going to play out. We'll see. Um, doesn't doesn't look like it's going to play out that way. Uh, so I do think we'll have to revisit some of those communities and see where they're at on the spectrum of disillusionment uh, that they have typically <laughs> with the federal government. In terms of energy policy, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm sure there'll be some some shifts here and there. Uh, but again, yeah, it's those market forces that I think we need to watch and, and see how those, how those play out for uh, those extractive industries. The other thing to talk about, I think, is the Environmental Protection Agency, the uh, likely head of that agency, which is really in charge of monitoring and regulating clean air and clean water, things like that. It looks like that could be something that's uh, under attack, even more so than normal. And Elizabeth, I know you cover the EPA quite a bit. What do you think is going to happen under a Trump administration to the EPA? One of the things I think will happen most quickly, because this is also something that happened during the Bush administration, is that enforcement actions are going to decline very rapidly. One of the ways that the EPA gets industry to clean up is to crack down. When uh, the refinery industry is ignoring the rules and letting toxic chemicals flow into the air, EPA will crack down and will go to one refinery after another. And then all of a sudden, the whole industry realizes oh, wait a second, we've got to clean up our act. And that kind of enforcement declined during the Bush administration. And that will happen, I would guess, more precipitously during the Trump administration. That's something they can do very quickly. And the other thing that will happen is that the workforce that does all that EPA does will decline rapidly. There are lots of baby boomers who are ready to retire in federal agencies, and they're going to retire because they're not going to want to work for President Trump. And there will be a hiring freeze, so they won't have, or at least that's what uh, Mr. Trump has said he will do when he's president. And then there won't be a new um, a new wave of workforce to do the work that EPA does. He will also surely tr- um, try to undo some of the rules that President Obama's EPA put into force, the Clean Power Plan 
top among them. He, you can't do that with the wink of an eye, and um, and that will take that will take time and effort. And so, um, I do think he will go after them. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't, because sometimes courts reinstate rules that want that a, an administration tries to get rid of. That happened with President Bush, and so um, so it'll, it will, it remains to be seen. But there's no question there will be a new direction for EPA and the. Um, the elevation that that agency has given to the issue of climate change and um, its impacts on our nation will change dramatically. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question, too, that leads into the the climate change uh, question. If you're just joining us, you're listening to West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News. I'm here today with our D.C. correspondent, Elizabeth Shogren, and with our contributing editor, Jonathan Thompson, and we're discussing the implications of a Trump presidency for the West. You know, the American West as a region, uh, you know, I feel is on the tip of the spear when it comes to climate change, uh, especially um, when you talk about drought or water, but but lots of changing things in, in environments, including alpine environments and such. Uh, you know, so I think it's worth asking if you have a presidential administration that um, either doesn't believe in climate change or says it doesn't believe in climate change, what kind of impacts that might have on the ground in terms of the agencies that are tasked with looking at climate change? And maybe, Elizabeth, you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, there has been a dramatic change in what federal agencies do in terms of climate change science and research and trying to figure out how do they change the way they manage federal lands to reflect the truly dramatic ways that climate change is altering landscapes across the West. And what has happened is that the, um, you know, at the biggest level, there's a national climate change assessment that has become a very important document of trying to go through the the latest and best science to, to figure out how our water supply is changing, how our forest fires changing? How are things changing across the West and the, across the, the U.S.? And that document then becomes available to, to governments at the local, state, and federal level to try to figure out how do we change the way we manage uh, both public and private lands um, in reaction to these big changes that are happening in our climate. And then um, at the level of the um, Interior Department, at the land management agencies that the Interior Department oversees, they have established many new landscape level offices where they look at our federal lands and state lands and public lands all t- and, and also private lands all together and try to figure out what are the changes that climate change is bringing. These are new organizations that didn't exist before the Obama administration. And they also have science research centers regionally where they're looking at climate change. The National Park Service has gone park by park to assess what are the climate change impacts in national parks and what do scientists project will be the impacts in the future. And this is about all kinds of things like melting glaciers that will no longer provide reliable drinking water to cities um, that that depend on them um, and uh, habitats that are no longer hospitable to rare and important species and um, streams that become too hot for native fish. All these changes now have been documented. That that documentation is not going to disappear when a new president comes into office. And that will make 
the job of park service managers and other federal land managers very difficult because they'll have the science and they'll know what the science is telling them and that, that it's telling them that they need to do something new. But there, what, what messages will they be getting from Washington about whether they should keep doing this science and whether they should change the way they behave because of that science? I don't think we know the answer to the second part. Hmm. I think what's interesting in this is that there's going to be there's going to have to be a shift in the way people, even more so in the way that climate change is addressed. In other words, you know, we're not going to see in the next four years climate change directly addressed through the federal government. So it's going to, you know, it's going to be up to, I think, states and more local leaders and, you know, individuals themselves, I guess, to sort of... Actually, Brian, mm, I, I just want to stop you because yeah. I, I disagree. I think that there are courageous scientists in the federal government who will stand up and do great work and they will speak out about their results and they will publish those results in important uh, journals and those stories will come out in in newspapers and they will get more attention than ever because there will be this conflict. I mean, and journalists love conflict and there will be an administration that's denying climate change and there will be more scientific evidence than ever showing how climate change is to blame for forest fires that are, that are bigger and more damaging than ever before and threatening people's livelihood. And, and, and that's just one example. And that, that's Hmm. going to, that, I mean, (laughs) What we've seen is that the mainstream media has really not been paying that much attention to climate change during the Obama administration because there was no conflict there. It was kind of a boring story, a president who wants to do good stuff on climate change, Mm ho-hum, right? But now there will be a president who wants to deny climate change with this science coming out that's Hmm. that's exactly in contradiction with him. All of a sudden, we're going to see a lot more interest in this topic from the mainstream media. You're going to see NPR and ABC and... CNN talk about climate change a lot more. Hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to move backwards. It means that that it's just going to be a much more controversial and unpredictable time. I don't I don't disagree with that. Um, Jonathan, what do you think? Uh, well, um, I, that may be an optimistic view, but <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I can't help it. That's my nature. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that I agree. I, th- I don't think that the the feds have the power, really enough power. There's in the next four years, there's going to be enough change to like sort of reverse all the progress we've made on climate change um, or whatever progress we've made on climate change. I just think that it's going to kind of go stagnant a little bit. The efforts that are going on now, they're going to stagnate on a on a federal level. But I would have to agree with Brian, too, that I think that that's going to put the real activism onto the state and local stage, as happened during the Bush administration. I mean, that's when you had all these mayors coming together with the climate packs. That's when you had a lot of things going on on a local level that um, weren't necessarily noticed that much, but have really now, like, if you go and look at the, the numbers of cities, you know, especially in the West that have gotten much better public transportation, where they had zero before, and that sort of thing, you know, I, th- I think that's the kind of thing that you're going to see. You're going to see sort of more local, maybe based activism, um, I hope. And maybe I, that's well, not. I, think, I think that's true, Jonathan. And the other thing that I think that is true is that Trump is unpredictable. And you could see that maybe he doesn't know very much about 
what's going on with solar energy right now. But in fact, um, just given how affordable it is and how it is actually supplying jobs, you could see that a president Trump might decide, hey, this is actually cool. And I'm going to find a way to to um, make it look like it's my doing. And I'm not saying that I know that's going to happen, but things can happen that are unpredictable. And with solar power being so ripe um, right now because of its uh, dramatic decline in costs and how um, states and cities are seeing it as a, a good option, I, I, I think that could, that could produce lots of differences. And even during the Obama administration, it was the movement to clean energy was mostly happening in the states and cities and not at the federal level, because even though the clean power plan is on the books, it hasn't changed anything yet. It's all about the future. And I, I think the federal government has been so clogged up with the partisanship that it's been hard for anything to really come from the federal level in recent years. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point, because really, we're in an uncertain time. And we really don't know what's going to happen. And, and that is scary for a lot of reasons, but there's room in there for optimism, I think, of this kind, this, this sort of uh, bring jobs back or America first, that there's room in there for renewables, maybe. Oh, yeah, I agree. And, I, you know, I think that the Democrats really in 2008, you know, that was kind of their platform was – Let's rebuild the country on renewable energy, uh, on natural gas development. I mean, let's not forget that, that eight years ago, drill, baby, drill was the Republican platform, but the Democrats were just as, as enthusiastic about drilling for natural gas, not oil necessarily, but natural gas, because it was cleaner or seen as cleaner at the time than coal. So, um, so yeah, they they were they were going for this like yeah let's rebuild jobs, do it by putting up wind factories and and wind turbines and that sort of thing, and I, I you're right I think Trump could totally get on board with that if he were to to look at it a little bit closer and see that maybe he could get credit for it for sure. I think we're just about out of time, which is unfortunate because there are so many things to talk about under the uh, Trump administration, the the effect that it's going to have. There are cultural effects and political effects. Uh, you know, there's there's a huge race question. There there's a lot of uncertainty for minorities and women. We have an entire Trump administration to uh, keep talking about these things. This has been another episode of West Obsessed. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News, and I've been speaking with Jonathan Thompson, our contributing editor, and Elizabeth Shogren, our Washington D.C. correspondent. I want to thank you again, uh, Jonathan. Thank you. And th thanks a lot, Elizabeth. It's been fun. Uh, if you want to learn more about uh, these issues and others, you can go to our website. That's hcn.org. If you want to make a comment on this particular conversation, uh, you can do that through the website of KVNF. That's kvnf.org. Uh, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.